The Eagle and Child, Episode 9. Mere Christianity, Book 2, Chapter 2, The Invasion. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we continue working our way through book two of Mere Christianity. As always, I'm joined by my fellow combatant on the side of the kingdom of heaven, Matt. I love that phrase, fellow combatant, especially given the title of the chapter today, The Invasion. In this chapter, Jack's going to show us why the Christian story is the best explanation for the world. And that's based on his understanding of man that he's presented so far to us with the moral law. Given the moral law and our understanding, Christianity makes the most sense, especially when we understand we live in this broken world that seems meaningless, but yet we know it's broken and it's not meaningless. It's not the way it should be, not the way it ought to be. Exactly. Jack has already spent a little bit of time talking about why atheism is too simple, why it doesn't account for all of the facts. And in today's chapter, he's going to speak about what he calls Christianity and water. And he's then going to spend most of his time talking about a dualism. Does a dualistic worldview explain what we experience? But before we go any further, cheers. Cheers. So we're mixing up our beer selection again today. We are now on to Shock Top, which is another Belgian white. Actually, it's my second favorite beer, besides Blue Moon. That's why I chose it. I went back and listened to the episode where you listed out your favorite beers, and I picked one. And you think you're self-centered. <laughs> I'm just bragging about how amazing I was to do that. <laughs> okay, so Jack begins this chapter identifying two philosophies which he regards as too simple. The first one is atheism, and he really dealt with this in the end of the previous chapter. There he pointed out the absurdity of the argument that he used when he was an atheist against God. He said that his main argument against God was the fact that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But as he pointed out, where did he get this idea of justice? He says, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So in the very act of trying to prove that the whole of reality was senseless, he found that he had to assume that at least one part of reality, his idea of justice, was actually full of sense. So we're moving on from atheism now. And then he goes on to what he calls Christianity and water. Here's how he describes it. It's the view which simply says that there is a good God in heaven and everything is all right leaving out all the difficult and terrible doctrines about sin and hell and the devil and the redemption. I suppose, rather than calling this Christianity and water, I would just call this watered-down Christianity. And I think I would say this brand of Christianity is still pretty alive and well today. That they might believe in God, they might even profess Jesus, but it's a far more watered-down version of Christianity where sin isn't really a real thing. You're reading that book by Dietrich von Hofer. This is all about cheap grace. Mm -hmm. It's God is in heaven, everything will be fine, and he doesn't really make any great demands of me. I wonder why that's so attractive to people. 
I think it's sort of along the same lines as the creative evolution that Jack talks about in a previous chapter. If all you really believe is the universe that is guiding you, it gives you the benefits of thinking that there's meaning and purpose, but without any responsibilities. I think you're exactly right. And I think why it's important to combat that view is it really misses the point of religion, mm -hmm. which we're going to talk about. But ultimately, religion is not meant to be a hindrance, but a beautiful description about how God intended us to live in relation to him in the world. And so religion is really just, as we'll talk about later, these statements of facts from God. Religion is reality. Yeah. It's understanding reality properly. And it's not. And a lot of my friends, when I hear them talk about religion, I think they think that I regard that Christianity is just my hobby. <laughs> no. No, it is my understanding of reality. Yeah. And with that in mind, I'd hate to get to the end of this world. As Lewis talks a lot about in The Weight of Glory, that moment you're presented in front of God and have just had Christianity be a hobby. I don't think I want to stand in front of the creator of the universe and say, oh, you were a hobby of mine. <laughs> So in contrast to atheism and Christianity and water, Lewis says that Christianity is not too simple. And he says that this is a good thing. And that's because real things are not simple. Or better said, simple things can turn out to be rather complex. When you really dig down into them. In classic C.S. Lewis, using a brilliant analogy that's simple to understand but really unpacks this, he gives the example of the simple action of looking at a table. And so think about that. You see a table, it looks pretty basic. Four legs and a top. It's made out of wood. Made out of wood. You wanna get, that's even getting a little more complicated. Whoa, sorry. <laughs> Easy. But ask a scientist what's going on. He'll talk about the atoms that are in the wood, the light that's reflecting off it and hitting your eyes. And so there's a lot more complexity to something that appears very simple. And it's not that the simple explanation is wrong. Mm -mm. It's just incomplete. And he gives another example about the planets. He says that once you understand that the planets are orbiting around the sun, he says you might expect them to be the same number and the same distance from each other, the same size. And he says, actually, no, there's no real rhyme or reason. There's no very obvious pattern to them. Some have moons, some have rings. It's all a little odd, not necessarily what you would have guessed at. The fact that Christianity is not simple is actually a motive for its credibility. He says, reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe in Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. It is just that queer twist about it that real things have. When I study Christianity, this is not intuitive. This is not something that man would have made up. And I think that's why man resists it so much. If this was something we would have made up, I think it would have been a lot easier. It would have actually been probably Christianity and watered down. As exactly. We were talking about in the beginning. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Yeah. And then he offers some advice to the would-be apologist, to the person that's talking about Christianity with an unbeliever. And he warns the apologist to be careful when you're talking to somebody when they ask for a simple explanation. Because it's silly to ask for a simple explanation and then just to trash it because it's simple. And likewise to ask for a more detailed, complicated explanation and then complain it's all too complicated. 
If you think about all of the things that we do in life, all of the classes that we go through in school and university, how much of that stuff was intuitive? Some of the things, sure, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't, well, this is obvious and simple and is therefore must be true. No, it's actually, this is kind of complicated and tricky and that's why it's true. Yeah. A natural question after this would be, what is religion to Lewis? I think this is one of his better points in the book, if I can be so bold as to say that. Although, to be fair, we've said this a lot already, and we're not even out of book two, but you're fair. (laughs) And I'm going to say it many more times going forward. In response to those who make the claim, God would only make a simple religion, because of course, there is a beauty in simplicity. He says, notice their idea of God making religion simple, as if religion were something God invented in the first place and not his statement to us of certain, quite unalterable facts about his own nature. It comes back to what we were saying earlier. Religion is reality. Yeah. The reason I like this point is because so much I hear religion is a man-made institution. Mm -hmm. That Lewis doesn't even address that. I think he would even ignore that completely. Here, he goes so far as saying it's not even a God-made institution. Like, it is just these... It's, certain... it's, it's not something invented by God, so yeah. to speak. Yes. It's just purely these statements of facts. Mm-hmm. And if you remember in another part of the book, we can argue about those statements of facts as we've learned them, but at the end of the day, they are statements of facts. Whether they're true or not, we can have conversations around. Mm-hmm. But we have to start with that premise. And just before we leave this section, I do just want to underscore, we're not saying that Christianity is illogical or that you have to check in your brain at the door as you go into church. All we're saying is that we can give a simple presentation of the faith, but when you dig into it, it can get complex in much the same way as looking at a table can be a very simple thing. But when you really start to unpack it, it can start getting rather complicated. In the same way I can express the Christian faith in very simple, broad terms that God became man, he died upon the cross, and therefore reconciled uh, us to God. But when we start to unpack what does that mean, how does that work, things can get kind of complicated. And the one other thing I'd add, because I actually had this comment brought to me this past week, not related to this podcast, by the way, but it also doesn't mean you have to know all of this complicated stuff to follow Jesus. No. You You can follow him in a very simple way that's completely beautiful. So we don't want that to come across either. Like, oh my goodness, I don't understand any of this. Therefore, I'm not a good follower. It's also kind of like if, say, somebody doesn't know Thomas Aquinas' five ways, or they can't explain how textual criticism works and about how you can prove the veracity of the Bible, you don't need to know those things in order to be a good Christian or to know that Christianity is true. There are many modes of, of learning and coming to arrival at the truth. It's just these are some other ways, and particularly if you're wanting to go a little bit deeper in your intellectual understanding of the faith, you can do that. Because Christianity is the faith that brings faith and reason together. If Jesus is the logos, if he is the reason, if he is the logic, then reason has a pride of place within the Christian tradition. Couldn't have said it better myself. But you couldn't have done it with an English accent. I definitely couldn't have done that. And as we spoke about earlier, that's... That's everything, really. (laughs) At least it makes you sound smarter. Exactly. I also wear glasses, too, just in case anyone was wondering. (laughs) Moving on. We've rejected atheism, and we've rejected Christianity and water. Lewis says these are just too simple. However, we still actually have a problem to solve. Here's Lewis. 
What is the problem? A universe that contains much that is obviously bad and apparently meaningless, but containing creatures like ourselves who know that it is bad and meaningless. And there are two possible conclusions we could draw from this. One, the Christian view, that is a good world that has gone wrong, but still retains a memory of what it ought to have been. And I would say here that we don't actually have to limit ourselves to Christianity. There are other religions that have this very similar idea, namely Judaism and Islam. Those are the two big ones that come to mind. That's exactly right. And then the second view, the dualistic view, which instead of saying it's a good world that's gone wrong, it says there are two equal and independent powers at the back of everything. One of them good and the other bad. And this universe is the battlefield in which they fight out an endless war. Yeah, it's this idea of light and darkness in this constant eternal battle. And the religion I think of particularly here is Zoroastrianism. Yes. And also Manichaeism, which was the group to which St. Augustine belonged before he converted to Christianity. And I think you could also say that a lot of New Age type religions have this very similar idea that there is this light and this dark in Star Wars, you have the light side of the Force and the dark side of the Force. It shows up in Hollywood a lot, doesn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And Lois is going to spend the rest of this chapter pointing out the flaws in dualism. Now, I'll admit, when I first started reading this book, I thought this was an odd distinction to make. Because how often do you bump into somebody who believes in Zoroastrianism? I thought the same thing, actually. Yeah, it, it's, it's not that common. So why is he wasting an entire chapter talking about this? However, I think it's important for two main reasons. The first is that while we're trying to derive the truth of reality from first principles, and dualism is a potential explanation for the reality that we experience. And if that's the case, we should consider it on its own basis. We should consider its merits and its flaws, regardless of whether or not we come into contact with somebody who would identify as a Zoroastrian. And secondly, Jack is going to be laying a very important foundation here for our understanding of good and evil. And I think that last point is critical. It's really the launch pad for book three. It is. What do we mean when we identify one power as good and the other is bad? There's two options. Yeah, so the first one is we can just say that, well, I identify one as good and the other as bad. I prefer one of these powers to the other. Kind of like you might prefer a beer to a cider. Yeah, it's on my own personal subjective opinion. I, I like the dark side of the force. You get lightning powers. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that's a good one. Not really a great standard to measure based on. Exactly. So what would be the second way? Well, the second way is to consider that actually in order to say one is good and one is bad, there has to be something higher than both of them. And this is really just feeding back into everything that we went through in book one, when we talk about the moral law and we talk about right and wrong. We can only call them right and wrong if they are in reference to something that is greater than themselves. It's like the exact same argument, actually, from book one. Yeah, but he's now saying that one of these powers is good in the sense that it relates to this greater power. It's in right relationship to it. And the other power is the bad power in the fact that it's in the wrong relationship to it. Here's how Jack puts it. He says, one of them is actually wrong. But the moment that you say that, you are putting into the universe a third thing in addition to the two powers. The being that made this standard is further back and higher up than both of them. And he will be the real God. 
So we see the inherent flaws in dualism already. You can't have two independent powers, one good, one bad. That system just doesn't make sense because you need a standard by which to call one good and one bad. There's another inherent problem. It requires that the bad power like badness for its own sake. But as we know, we have no experience of this in the world. Now, some people will say, no, I know somebody who really likes being bad. He seems to enjoy sinning. And I'd tell them they need to find new friends. <laughs> but what we know is doesn't actually like being bad for the sake of badness. It's always in relation to some other desire. For example, you might do something bad because you're seeking a good just in a broken way. Mm -hmm. Usually you're seeking power, money, pleasure. Which... Or, or health, happiness. Exactly. And none of those are inherently bad. They can go bad if the wrong desire or they're over-desired or done in the wrong way. But that's usually what causes someone to do something evil. They're not just saying, you know what? I just want to do something bad for the sake of being bad. Mm-hmm. They, they want something good, but they pursue it in the wrong way, in the wrong time, to the wrong degree. That's exactly right. But we can say that there are people who pursue goodness for just purely the sake of goodness. Because it is good. I might not be in the mood to do something nice, but because I know it is the right thing to do, I'll do it. But you'd never have people that aren't feeling in the mood to be cruel, but they do something wrong for the, for the sake that it's wrong. And so what we've learned from this is essentially badness is contingent on goodness. Mm -hmm. You can't, darkness isn't a thing. It's just an absence of light. That's exactly right. And this draws into the whole scholastic tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas and even going back to Augustine. And when I was rereading this earlier today, it put me in mind of Hugh Hefner. So at the time of recording, Hugh Hefner had recently died. And on Facebook, I saw two polar opposite responses. Some people saying he was a terrible, terrible man. He's now rotting in hell. And some people saying, oh, he was uh, this great liberator, wonderful person. And I posted an article by Christopher West, the guy who's behind the theology of the body, just because I thought it was a little bit more middle of the road. He identified some of the things that Hefner had done in his life that had really perpetuated the sexual revolution, the breakdown of the family, the degradation of women. But he then tried to explain a little bit of what's going on inside Hugh Hefner. Not that he necessarily just wanted to destroy everything, but that he was acting out of a brokenness, that he was seeking after the true, the good, and the beautiful, but doing it in the wrong way, to the wrong extremes, that ultimately what Hugh Hefner wanted was love. He wanted happiness. He wanted God. But he was searching for God in all the wrong places. And he was taking something beautiful, like women, and wonderful, like sex, and twisting it, perverting it. And that the human heart ultimately seeks all of these good things, but often makes a real mess of the pursuit. And I think that point is so beautiful and critical when we interact with this broken world. Because now, when you see someone broken, you don't judge them and be like, this is just a crappy person. Yeah. Instead, you say, wow, this is a person with a passion and a fire pursuing in the wrong way. Yeah. I think Ron Rohauser has a book called The Holy Longing, which talks about that idea that you almost want a person like Hugh Hefner in the sense that he's got a ton of passion and that you can't teach. 
we just need to work how to re redirect it exactly it's like when somebody is sleeping around what they're really doing is they're looking for love yeah they're just doing it in the wrong way and we have the answer and just building off that jack makes the point that the bad power itself cannot even supply good things for itself to desire the bad power in the dualistic system has existence and will and these are good things but the bad power has got to steal that from the good power, so to speak. There have to be good impulses in order for him to pervert. And Lewis actually even gives the example of sexual misconduct when we talk about sexual perversion. We can actually only explain sexual perversion by looking at the real deal and then explaining from there. But you can't do it around the other way. You can't talk from sexual perversion back to real sexual union. So this now comes full circle to your second point of why are we even talking about dualism? It's all building to this understanding of the Christian story. By understanding dualism better, we can understand the Christian story. This is exactly why Christians believe what they do about the devil. And when he made this point, I was floored the first time. I did not see this coming. No. But he's spoken about evil, darkness. All these things are perversions of good. And at the end of this section where he's been talking about good and evil, he says, perhaps you can now understand why Christians have always said that Satan is a fallen angel. Because you might be hearing some of the things we say about dualism and think, that sort of sounds a little bit like Christianity. And he's going to address that in a moment. But the big difference, Christianity understands that there is not this independent evil power. The evil power that was there was once good and was twisted, was deformed and rebelled. Christianity is really the only consistent explanation for so many different things in the world. We're talking about this fallen angel, which makes sense. Dualism has these illogical inconsistencies in it. Christianity has a really... It resolves them very neatly. It does. And explains things like the problem of pain, which C.S. Lewis has a book on. Suffering, when people say, I can't believe in a God that would ever let this happen to me. This is the explanation for why this happens. And I don't know about you, but for me understanding these concepts and going through this journey the last few years has only strengthened my conviction in Christianity. Because the more I unpack it, the more I dig into it, the more I see how incredibly well it explains everything in the universe. Our human condition, the suffering that we go through, it has the problem, it has the solution so incredibly well articulated. So we've now got rid of atheism, we've got rid of Christianity and water, and we've now got rid of dualism. And Lewis now does something that he mentioned at the start of chapter one. Remember when he said how Christianity was, in a way, more liberal than atheism, recognizing the truth in other religions where it existed, where it could be found? Well, he now points out, as I mentioned earlier, that Christianity actually has some aspects of dualism. Christianity is a fighting religion. The church is a people at war. But a different war. A different kind of war. He says, it is a civil war, a rebellion. And we are living in a part of the universe that is occupied by the rebel. The rightful king has landed and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And I love this next bit. He says, when you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. And that is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us going. I can't help but think of the Screwtape letters there. Oh, I love the Screwtape letters. <laughs> but I can't help but wonder how someone living at the time when Lewis was speaking and writing these things, how they would have received this, because they were a people at war. 
and they themselves would gather around the wireless to listen in for news about the struggle that was been going on. Isn't that brilliant how he uses that analogy? And now when they think of church, they think of it in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. I think that was brilliant on his part. It's not just to go somewhere for an hour and listen to a boring talk and everybody to dress up and look smart and pretend that everything's perfect in your life. And it's not just to go because you have to in order to get to heaven. No. It's, it's a part of a much bigger story that's a really incredible adventure to be a part of. And if I can get on my soapbox briefly, I think this is the message that in particular Christian men need to hear. Yes. Too many Christian men think that religion is all about being nice, about being safe. Whereas as Lewis points out here, as he presents the gospel message, our understanding of reality, we are at war and there, there is a battle to fight. I don't think we can end any better than that. <laughs> as always, my notes and quotes for this chapter will be in the show notes. Unfortunately, there is no C.S. Lewis doodle this week, which is oh, very sad. Bummer. <laughs> But please like, share, and subscribe, iTunes, Google Play. I've got to say, over the last couple of weeks, I've had some lovely messages from people saying they've really been enjoying the podcast. And thank you to everyone who's done that. And I would also say, please rate us. Please share us. Please tell your friends to listen to us. We've had more ratings than I was expecting by this stage. But we could always get more. We can always do more. Because our goal here is just to get more people reading C.S. Lewis. I thought it was just to make us feel good with good ratings. That too. That too. I have a very shallow sense of self and a very fragile ego. I need those likes, you know, all that good stuff. Exactly. I need my self-worth validated. (laughs) But we also just want to get people reading C.S. Lewis. Yes. Hopefully you can understand and hear from the way that we speak about this, that we're passionate about the works of C.S. Lewis, that we think that this is something that the world needs to hear. If you like, share and subscribe. Maybe people hate our conversation. Maybe they think that the English guy is stuck up and the American is obnoxious, but you never know. They might then crack open mere Christianity and get something good from the man that we actually want everybody to come to know. And in the process of maybe trying to prove us wrong, they learn more. Yeah. I'm totally fine with that. I am always okay with being wrong. Yeah. (laughs) That's a total lie. No, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like to contact us, please do so through the website, restlesspilgrim.net. You can tweet us at Pints with Jack. We love your questions. We love your comments. And please join us next week when we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>